you know, we have policymakers in this country from right here in the municipal level all the way up to the federal level. And to me, a policymaker needs to be in touch with the industry or with the people or right. with the environment that they're making policy for. And if you are never, ever involved in that industry or in that environment, how can you make a policy that's sustainable? <laughs> I mean, we're talking right. about people that have been in office for their entire life. Right. Welcome to season five of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is agriculture. In this season, we're gonna interview some of Wisconsin's hardworking farmers from across the state. Wisconsin leads the nation in total cheese production, goat milk production, cranberry production, and more. Wisconsin's home to nearly 65,000 farms, which means it's absolutely critical that policymakers remain closely in touch with the agriculture industry in order to create sensible and sustainable agriculture policies. In this first episode of season five, we feature an interview with Kevin Hoyer of the Hoyer Farm in West Salem, Wisconsin. Kevin and his wife, Jody, are third generation family farmers and due to technological advances, both Kevin and Jody have been able to work both the farm and hold outside professions. Kevin is an agronomist and Jody is a quality supervisor at a milk plant in Sparta, Wisconsin. In today's episode, Kevin explains how his family farm involved from once producing dairy, forage, hay, corn, chickens, and pigs, to today growing mostly soybeans. He also discusses how modern technology has positively impacted the quality of life for farmers, and he dives into the reasons why he decided to make a run for Wisconsin State Assembly. Today's discussion is an important one, particularly given all the ways that our country's food security has a big impact on our country's national security. I hope that you enjoy. This is the Right Idea Podcast. So we're here in rural West Salem today with Kevin Hoyer, and we are thrilled to have you on the Right Idea Podcast. Um, Kevin, thanks for having us. Well, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> I won't forget that name very, very easily. But uh, we'll at least be good on that. Absolutely. I mean, it's a pleasure to be able to host you at, at the farm here and uh, give you a small tour of what we do out here in uh, rural West Salem area, and uh, and kind of tell our story of, of agriculture and and uh, where we've been and where we're going and how we're going to get there. Absolutely, and we're thrilled. And and we'll share pictures with our listeners when we when we share this uh, episode. But we're actually in the I'd call it the machine shed. We've got three great tractors behind us that have all been restored. You said told us by your father. It's iconic. It's quite a view. Yeah. I mean, you look back over the the history of the farm. Um, The the farm we're sitting on now, my wife and I uh, purchased from the neighbors. Uh, We started purchasing it back in the early to mid-90s when they decided to retire from dairy farming Mm -hmm. themselves. But uh, my dad, as he got older and and, uh, retired, um, just like most other farmers, they don't have hobbies. (laughs) <laughs> uh, their hobby is always on the farm, and it's, they don't know nothing else besides getting up in the morning, taking care of your animals, um, making sure that the cows are milked, the young stock mm-hmm. is fed, all that before you have breakfast yourself in the morning. Right. And a lot of times, um, when you look at the dairy industry and the livestock industry, farmers tend to put their livestock and their farm ahead of their own personal health mm-hmm. and personal issues. But... Uh, he picked up on the uh, on the equipment he had and decided he wanted to restore it. And 
some of the tractors that are in this uh, in this shop right now um, are original to the farm, and um, mm-hmm. he's taken great pride in restoring uh, one. His pride and joy is the gold demonstrator in, Which in is the back beautiful. corner. It's international, international ten twenty six, mm-hmm. and um, that was the workhorse on the farm, and um, we absolutely destroyed it basically on the farm, just working it hard all every day. It was the main tractor, and now it is the showpiece of the farm, and he's proud of it. I'm proud of it, and um, the whole egg industry. Um, looking back at where we've come with um, technology and machinery equipment, mm-hmm. we should be proud of that too. That's that's put the U.S. farmer on the top of the heap of providing the the necessary ingredients, whether it's food, fuel, fiber, um, up on top of the the world platform that other countries look to us. Right. To help fill their gaps, their needs, um, to help feed their people, fuel their economy, and also to uh, provide fibers for their for their clothing and, and other items that they so uh, sorely right. uh, re- rely on. Tell me, so you've already alluded to it. Tell me about what lands you here on this farm. So there's a family history in farming. Give us a just kind of an overview of that and what brings you here to this particular farm today. Well, like I said, this farm was the neighbor's farm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's right across the road from literally the farm. across the street. Yeah, yeah, right. literally. I mean, right. we we grew up as like like brothers and sisters uh, as as one family, um, which uh, the farming community typically and and back in the early days was one big giant family. Mm-hmm. Um, we've evolved quite a, quite a bit in agriculture since then. Um, some of it's for you know, a lot of it's for the good. Some of it uh, you have your goods and your and your and your bads with it. But um, the home farm was was purchased by my my grandfather um, after working on as a farmhand all of his life. Um, so he came in and, and bought the original farm with his own hard hard work and, and equity and, and built that up to the, the family farm it is today. And as the generations uh, came along, we to support all of us on the farm, um, you have to evolve and. and um, take over and um, other aspects of farming mm-hmm. get more diversified and bring the other sources of income and mm-hmm. so the opportunity arose and my wife and I um, were able to step in and uh, work our way into the farm we have now on our own and um, it was not handed down to us in any way it mm-hmm. was um, just one of the, and I'm proud of that is the fact that we we did this on our own. Mm-hmm. We didn't rely on, uh, on on others to give us subsidies to buy a farm, or to um, or to set us up in a way that um, we would succeed. Um, parents were were very supportive of us and helped mm-hmm. us in in management stuff and and borrowing equipment and the like. But um, uh, to me, I grew up that if you couldn't survive on your own you better find something else that you can survive mm-hmm. in. And that includes farming in any other business is to, to be able to find ways to survive on your own and move forward. Talk to me about the, so you're, if I'm correct, your parents had dairy. Did they have crop too? Yeah. All, all dairy farms in this area were very diverse okay. um, coming out of the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, all the way up to uh, the eighties and nineties. Uh, very all the, all the dairy farms are very diversified. Mm-hmm. Not only did they have dairy, but they had the crops to support, to support. feed right. um, those animals. Um, forage being one of them. So you saw a lot of hay, pasture ground, 
that um, was in the mix. A little bit of corn was for the, the protein sources and, and the high energy sources. Soybeans weren't much of a crop back mm-hmm. then because you could you could always buy some extra protein, okay. um, plant-based protein to fill that in. But it was uh, typically a, a crop rotation that involved uh, corn for, for grain or for forage and then a lot of hay. Um, and then back then also there was all, always, you always had the, a, a chicken coop that you had your uh, chickens in and mm-hmm. um and also the hog barn where you know we we had pigs we had chickens and we had dairy so if something really wasn't pulling its weight something else would and, and right. in agriculture it's all cyclical mm-hmm. so you always had something to fall back on it you could survive that you were completely sustainable through right. all of this and now as you purchase your own farm and you are exclusively crop at this point is that correct yes we are exclusively crop but okay. both my wife and i work off the farm we have other professions um okay. my wife is a uh, is a quality supervisor at a local um, uh, milk plant uh, in sparta wisconsin foremost uh, family farms mm-hmm. um where at that location they do a lot of drying of whey and milk products and most everything there is a high protein powder that either gets put into other foods or exported into other markets for baby formula or other foods as well. Okay. Um, I myself work off the farm as an agronomist, um, something I had training for coming right out of school, mm-hmm. um, that I work with other farmers, whether it's uh, livestock, dairy, hog, beef farmers, or, or crop farmers in, in helping them to maximize their crop production in, in the best ways possible, looking at different crop protection products, um, disease management, uh, seed management, soil management, mm-hmm. nutrient management. Um, and, and that's just something I kind of fell in love with uh, was, was the cropping end of it while my wife fell in love with the dairy end of it. So it kind of helped diversify what we looked at too. But it, right. the off-the-farm jobs on the size of farm we have is is vital to making sure that we can we can hang on to the farm we have and still enjoy the quality of life that we want to enjoy. Right. And that's one thing over agriculture over the years is the quality of life in agriculture has changed dramatically from being a very um, um, secluded way of life mm-hmm. back in the early days to now um, you are enjoying some of the same benefits and qualities that are um our urban friends, urban relatives have that uh, we have the opportunities to go out and catch a ball game or take mm-hmm. a vacation and, and have some time to ourselves. So our quality of life has improved with the way farming has, has changed over the years. And I think that's that's beneficial to keeping agriculture very sustainable in, in the United States. Yeah, and what you're talking, I assume some of what you're talking about is just technological advances that have allowed farmers to get greater leverage so you've got more flexibility or how would you describe it? Well, the technological, the technological, you know, I struggle <laughs> with that word quite often, but it's an awesome <laughs> word. Um, advances that we have in agriculture mm-hmm. has allowed farmers to do more with less. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not the egg industry, but it's every industry. Right. Finding people to work on the farm is difficult. It's very, it's still very much a, um, a very um, manual labor intensive operation. Um, type of uh, operation even though we have bigger tractors we have mm-hmm. automated um, feeders now we have automated milkers robotic milkers um, right oh for gosh I mean <laughs> who would have thought that a cow would willingly walk into a stall and have a machine 
washer <laughs> and attach a milker to her. Mm -hmm. And there's no human labor involved in that. But um, it's either that or or the the farmer or and his hired help is out in that barn almost 18 hours a day and, and right. enjoys no quality of life. So there, there's some benefits with that. So most of the technology um, that has come to us has helped us to improve our overall sustainability, reduce our use of uh, fertilizers mm -hmm. uh, on a per unit of production basis, reduce our use of pesticides, again, on that per unit of production basis, um, use the uh, prescription of what we need to have instead of a blanket treatment of something we need to have, which all in all turns around into less nitrogen in our groundwater, mm -hmm. less phosphorus in our surface waters, less pesticides on our food, um, more beneficial insects on our farms, um, more wildlife diversity. We've got wildlife on our farm that I've never seen before. Hmm. Um, we've, I've never seen bobcat. Okay. We have bobcats. Now. Oh, we've, really? We've got bear. Hmm. Um, we've got um, pheasants are starting to show back up. Um, the rabbit population is coming back. Um, you know, the, the lacrosse river borders our, our farm and, and one of the things that just struck me this in the last couple of years is my nephew goes down there and fishes off off the edge of our property down in the river there, and he comes back. He says, "Yeah, I caught a forty-two inch muskie, a forty-two inch muskie in the Lacrosse River in West Salem, <laughs> Wisconsin." Are you serious? Yeah, forty-two inch muskie out of there. Plus, there's there he's catching walleye out of that river, and anybody who knows fishing knows that if you want walleye, you need to have some clean water pristine water right um the trout stream running through our farm the trout are coming back so mm -hmm. i mean it's 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 a testament to the technology we have that's actually been able to help us keep our waters cleaner our environment cleaner and you talked about this earlier before as we did our tour and part of that is being able to keep the water on the land in a way that it would typically what previously would have run off is that is that right that yeah uh over the years i remember growing up as a kid we'd get a three inch rain like we just had last night in a half an hour and the next day, we'd have to go walk the fences in the, in the creek bottoms and mm -hmm. make sure the fence didn't wash out. And that water was always muddy and dirty. Mm -hmm. um, recently, last 10, 15 years, we're not having that. Even mm -hmm. though we've had big rains, the water's staying on the land. It's not washing off the fields, down through the creek bottoms, mm -hmm. down the creeks, down the rivers. Um, so the benefit is we don't have to make fences often. Right. But we're also not putting that polluted soil um into the water right so the whole the whole water system is is cleaner right from the source right so that that's that's something that i don't think a lot of people realize that when they're looking out at the landscape and they see how farmers are changing their practices they forget about the water that's leaving the land or not leaving the land I think an important thing too to to bring up for all of our listeners too is that there's an alignment with with between what farmers want and what people that are concerned about the environment want, which is you want the water on your land. You don't want runoff. You right. you are fully incentivized. You don't need regulatory regulatory uh, punishment here because you want to retain the water, and then you also have just like all people do, uh, leaving farming aside, interest in having a clean environment and having you know trout and musky fishing available to you as well. There's in other words, there's a virtuous cycle here. You want to do the right thing by the water and the environment too, because it benefits the farm. It benefits your, your entire community. Well, that's vital. It, it benefits our livelihood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I grew up here. Mm -hmm. My parents grew up here. 
Um, generations grew up here, and the last thing that someone who grows up in area wants to do is destroy it. Right. And uh, that, you know, you look over the years and how different technologies have come in. It's just, just amazing. And it reminds me of a story that one of my first trips I took when I was on the American Soybean Association board was a uh, was a, a trade mission to Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, did a little studying on Turkey, and I was not overly comfortable going to Turkey, um, but what a fascinating country. Mm-hmm. Um, that country, you know, going back to biblical times is just full of history. And, and right. I'd go back in a heartbeat um, to visit certain areas of Turkey. Not all of it, but certain right. areas. But I uh, had the opportunity to sit in the office of the Minister of Ag and be uh, the equivalent of um, our Secretary of Ag. Okay. Uh, so I was sitting in, in his office across from his desk, and he was a veterinarian by trade. And we were talking about... Uh, technology, and we got on the subject of genetically modified organisms. And at that time we were there, they were contemplating um, banning not only all growth of plants in Turkey um, from being GMO, but all imports as well. And um, as the conversation went on, he, um, he made the comment, he says, you know, recently I have not something that's disturbed me out in the countryside is I'm not seeing the snakes I used to see. Well, I'm not a fan of snakes. <laughs> um, really, They really make me uncomfortable. And um, I did all I could just to sit there and nod my head, be very quiet to see where he's going with us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, he said, you see, the snake to us is a sign of the circle of life. And we are not seeing the snakes anymore. The snakes eat the rodents in the field. Mm-hmm. And there aren't the rodents in the field anymore. Mm-hmm. And he, he said the rodents in the field have disappeared because of the overuse of pesticides mm-hmm. by their farmers in the field. Which is true. Overuse of pesticides kill off beneficial species. Right. And um, it just struck me that the misconception of using modern technology to reduce pesticides in the field actually would come full circle to no snakes. <laughs> and I had the opportunity then to say, well, on our farm, we uh, reduced our use of pesticides that actually are harmful to the rodents. So we do have, while we don't have the snakes, we do have the hawks. Mm-hmm. We do have the other predatory uh, animals that are coming in and feeding off the rodents. So just by being able to reduce a pesticide or a practice that was right. harmful in the past, you have to have an open mind going into this and see the benefits of this as well. And and full circle, you start to see those species come back to the farm like we're starting to see now. Right. Well, that's exactly why we're having this conversation. I think it is so important that Consumers of your product, of the food that's being produced, understand that there's a lot of labels thrown out there. There's a lot of marketing that happens in agriculture and, and frankly, with the end products that you see in the supermarket. But people need to take a step back and, like you said, have an open mind and learn and understand. Like, look, there's trade-offs, there's benefits to all different decisions we make in life. This can be true in any industry. It's true of farming. But you should think about, you know, ultimately you want affordable, high-quality food in the, in the store that you can buy. And you also want to know that, yes, people are being good stewards of the environment for future generations. Well, that means we need to be critical and think strategically about the technologies that we use and be smart about it. 
Absolutely. It all goes hand in hand with food security. Mm-hmm. Um, food security is national security. Every country knows this. Right. Every country knows right. this. And, and you brought up the, the topic of labeling. Um, labeling has become a hot button topic for me when I was on the ASA board when mm-hmm. they wanted to put the GMO label on these foods. The Soybean Association? Soybean yep. Association is American Soybean Association, mm-hmm. um, which is a grassroots ag policy um, organization on the, uh, not only the state, but the national and, and international level. Right. Um, and, and we were very um, much concerned about the uh, the labeling of some of these foods to have the uh, the GMO, the genetically modified organism label on them, mm-hmm. um, which is nothing but a marketing label. Um, Talk had, about that for a while. Well, yeah, I, would, I think it's important to discuss. Yeah, labeling in general in the U.S. was reserved for what was in the food. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the ingredients? What are the hazards? Um, and that's what the label is. You know, what's in this package? Is it 16 ounces or right. is it less? Um, right. Does it have sugar in or doesn't it? Does it have this ingredient in or doesn't it? GMO is not, a, not an ingredient. Right. It's a process. Right. Um, and, you know, bring that even fo- more forward into the, uh, into the food market. There's the, uh, the dairy is concerned with labels that, that call products milk. Mm-hmm. And they're not derived from animals. Um, I don't know. It's I grow soybeans, but I've never been able to milk a soybean, even <laughs> though there are some 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 wonderful, uh, very nutritious juices that come from the soybean plant that people do consume that are lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. So there's a place for all of it, mm-hmm. but um, the marketing end of it gets to the point where there's confusion in the marketplace, mm-hmm. and. Um, when confusion happens, then all of a sudden there's uh, there, there's that whole deal of ours is better than yours, or one sector bashes the other sector, and in in all reality, we need them all to feed a, feed this world. Our world right. is growing so fast. It is, and I, I can't remember the numbers out there, but they a couple years ago, um, um, the uh, Danforth Plant Technology Center came out and told us where we're going for world population, I think 9 billion or something mm-hmm. like that, um, by 2050, and what it would take to feed 9 billion people mm-hmm. in this world. And it's not organic, and it's not this, and it's not that. Mm-hmm. It's going to take everything. Everything, right. And and food has become a very, um, oh, what do I call it here? Now I'm, now I'm stumbling to look for the right word, but it, it's emotional. Mm-hmm. It's a very emotional topic. We all want clean food. We all want safe food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so do I. I'll go out in the field and I'll shuck out some soybeans from the pot and I'll eat them directly. Right. They're GMO. <laughs> They've been sprayed with Roundup. <laughs> um, I, but I feel they're safe. Right. Um, there's, there's no proof that they are not safe. Um, matter of fact, um, some of the um, scientists from the Danforth Plant Center and even from the National Institutes of Health has said that that GMO technology has added nothing new or unique to our food system that we already haven't been consuming for centuries. So, I th- And that's why this is so critical, right? I think that, again, there's there's marketing afoot. There's different reasons why people in the industry do what they do. And we're not, we don't get into all of that right now. But but that that is a 
scientific analysis that people should be made aware of and they should understand because to the point you're making, population growth is real. There were theorists in the 1970s who said that we had already surpassed our ability to support the, the human population mm -hmm. of the globe. Well, they were wrong. And part of the reason that they were wrong is because they, they couldn't think creatively about what technology was out there. And mm -hmm. you make the point about American farmers leading the way in terms of productivity. You do. There's no two ways about it. And you set a course for the rest of the world to hopefully follow, to understand like how you can innovate, how you can be creative and how you can get leverage from the technology and tools that we have to put good, healthy food on the table across the world. And because it gets down to that security piece. We as Americans should want other countries to have food security as well, too. And as much as we through trade can provide to that, mm -hmm. that's great because we want peace. Oh, ab absolutely. Food security is national security. Right. And I've been to China a couple of times on, on trade missions, and it's quite evident they understand that, too. Food security is, is national security. Mm -hmm. Anybody who has over a billion people that they need to keep peaceful. Right. Um, a peaceful population is not a rebellious population. And a rebellious population typically starts out by being hungry. Uh, so they're our biggest customer, by far the biggest customer we have for our agricultural products. And we aim to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be on a level playing field. They, they cannot be manipulating their currency. They cannot be coming in and stealing our technology. They cannot be playing games in, with the economy that they're, that they're doing. So at the moment, to gain an, an edge themselves, and that, that's what my fear is, that um, they're investing in, in U.S. technology. They're investing in U.S. agricultural entities. And we will lose our ability to be independent in that respect. So if we aim to keep national security here in the mm -hmm. U.S., we need to make sure that our not only our allies, but those of countries that are not our allies right. also have peace and security as well because if they don't that means they're looking to do other things and maybe to us because they see how good we have it in the that in the United States as far as our agricultural um, background that we have and we can supply of, of various amounts of food that they need to survive on along with our our fibers and our fuels, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's all intertwined and you just can't take one um, and and hope that the others will survive. You make a number of important points, some of which I was going to ask you about and you, you brought them up now, which is great. And so one of them, getting to the issues of trade, my hope eventually is that the Chinese people are truly free and that they can set their own course and their own destiny. And that's that's there's there's many barriers to that occurring right now and that's imposed by their government. And that's a discussion we could spend a week on. Uh, without that being solved in our current state, we have to deal with trade realistically and pragmatically. And one of the things I tell people as we go across the state is farmers want access to markets. They don't want your charity. They don't want your pity. They don't want you calling them a, a victimhood case. What they want is access, just like all business people do, access to markets so they can mm -hmm. sell product. And what you're alluding to, I think, and what I'd love to hear more from you on is that our, our trade has not exactly been strategic in the past. And there's free trade, and that's a, a, a term that's been embraced by many people, but then there's strategic trade, which is making sure that yes, we understand trade is a two-way street, but if you're gonna have access to our markets, the greatest consumer market in, in all the world, then perhaps maybe we should have access to your markets too, not just perhaps, but we will. And we have to ensure that that is part of our, our trade strategy. I agree with you, and, and, and that comes right back to national security. Mm -hmm. now, 
we are more of an opportunistic trader uh, on both sides, imports and exports. We will go with wherever that opportunity exists. And sometimes we overlook the, uh, the value of having that strategic trade, like you mentioned. And I never looked at it that way, but, but you are correct. If we have that strategic trade that I will take care of you, if you take care of me, um, I would think you could cut down on foreign aid packages of directly giving cash to other countries to where, hey, I have this good or this service that you're in need of. Mm -hmm. You have that good or service that you're in need of. Let's make a trade. Mm -hmm. um, instead of, here's a pallet full of cash we're going to leave on the tarmac <laughs> in the dead of night on a runway, do as you feel. Mm -hmm. um, that is not strategic in my right. book. That is that. I got other words for that that I won't get into right now, <laughs> but um, we are a world economy. Right. We weren't a world economy until the last couple of decades here, and it's being um, more evident every day as we go along that what China wants to do, because China is such a large player, um, the whole world reacts to it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I, when these sanctions went on, um, the tariffs went on. Um, the the activities that were done by uh, the the Chinese um, government leading up to it needed to be dealt with decades before, right? Um, administrations exactly. before, and I'll be honest, as a farmer, we didn't want that because we realized that China was our biggest customer, and if we put sanctions on there, what was going to happen? Um, you know, it's like taking a medicine. You have to take some medicine to get better. Mm -hmm. And um, the sanctions went on. And I happened to be in China when the sanctions went on okay. on, a, on a trade mission. It turned into a very different type of trade mission once we landed. Um, but it, it was quite evident that China was going to eat and mm -hmm. consume what they were going to eat and consume and it didn't matter where they were going to get it from. They were going to buy it from the cheapest source possible. And when I'm in on these trade missions, they look at, you know, primarily soybeans, they look at one as or two aspects, mm -hmm. protein and dollars per pound of protein. Mm -hmm. And in the case of soybeans, there's so many other aspects to it, amino acids and other nutritionals with it, along with the oils, along with the fibers, along with the, the fuel, along with the, with a bunch of other things that people don't realize what, what a little kernel of corn or a little um, bean plant can actually produce mm -hmm. is more than animal feed that turns into food that goes on your table. Uh, so it was, these missions are very eye-opening to me mm -hmm. as far as how other countries view us right. and how we actually live compared to they do. And we weren't getting this full story on how the people of Turkey, how they had a 36% unemployment rate and how they had to survive, mm -hmm. how the Chinese people were only given what the government wanted them to know mm -hmm. or have. And that was quite evident when we landed and I opened up my, my uh, laptop and iPad and I want to go on Facebook couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and the questions that we were being asked was quite evident that they were mm -hmm. being told one thing and it wasn't 
what was happening in the rest of the world. Which is true. And there's such distortion of information. We, would look, we see distortion of information in our own <laughs> media market. Yes. Yeah, just take that to the nth degree when you go to a country like, uh, like China or, frankly, anywhere else in the world. But I, I do think what you bring up is important, that our, we elect policymakers and we have an expectation, I think particularly conservatives, that we've got full lives, we have jobs, we have our church, we have our family, we send them into office for a period of time, we give them a certain set of responsibilities and we hold them accountable. And I think one of the places that they really have missed the ball over the past, call it, it's really a matter of decades in post-World War II economy, is understanding that the U.S. consumer market was what the whole world always wanted access to. Incredible buying power. Even if there's not the most people here, there's incredible buying power. And that was great strategic leverage for all trade deals to be entered into in a, in a way that was not meant to harm our trading partners, but was meant to make sure that we weren't simply opening up access for their products into our markets for cheaper, cheaper goods to be available to American consumers, but also making sure that American goods were being sold abroad. And uh, I think that way too many of them took a short-term policy view. I think Wisconsin in particular has been hit hard by that between agriculture and manufacturing, frankly, and paper production too. And a more strategic view would have said, we have massive leverage. Why would we not enter every single deal thinking about the long-term implications of these precious industries we mm -hmm. have? They will be introduced to competition and that's okay. But let's do that strategically in a smart way. And that's where I think the ball has been firmly missed. And you know, just one piece of it, right? The granting of permanent uh, most favored tr uh, trading status to China and the WTO. And then the promise that came from both Democrat and Republican politicians that, well, by doing that, that will normalize their practices with regard to intellectual property and technology and, and so on and trade. And guess what? It didn't happen because they gave away the leverage. Well, in theory, that sounded awesome. You know, when we in theory, first, right. When we, we first <laughs> heard that China was going to be uh, entering the, the WTO agreements and pacts and treaties, that um, that would finally make China play by the rules. That was the, that was the bill of goods that was sold. <laughs> and I don't think there was a single judgment by the WTO that went against China. Um, I was very encouraged during the last administration when different um, trade deals were made on that strategic level, mm -hmm. something that we had never looked at in the past. And uh, the, the strategic trade deals that, that President Trump made with the USMCA was needed. Absolutely. Um, the, the Japanese, Amer uh, U.S. trade deals, the, uh, the Korean, uh, the uh, tra South Korea trade deals, the Vietnam trade deals, uh, the, the ones that were done unilaterally versus multilaterally, yes. pulling out of NAFTA, right. um, sent shockwaves through the egg industry because we worked hard. We worked hard to do that. Right. And um, all of a sudden, it's gone. Hmm. Uh, but it turned around that it was probably the best that then now we could do that strategic trade mm -hmm. and do that trade deal with that particular country to know that we're going to have some back and forth trade Absolutely. and not have too many cooks in the pot stirring. Right. Now, you brought up earlier, and it just, you know, we have policymakers in this country from right here in the municipal level all the way up to the federal level. And to me, a policymaker needs to be in touch with the industry or with the people or right. with the environment that they're making policy for 
And if you are never, ever involved in that industry or in that environment, how can you make a policy that's sustainable? <laughs> I mean, we're yeah. talking about people that have been in office for their entire life. Right. We have a president that's been in the Senate for 47 years, <laughs> knows nothing about anything except being in the Senate. Right. Um, we had a president that worked his entire life, <laughs> built companies, knew what it took, made deals. Right. Um, that's concerning. And I think people need to stand up and realize that when you are going to elect someone to a position of policymaking, I don't care what level it is. If it's on the school board, your town board, county board, state, federal, these people had better have an idea of what they're of what's going on, right? And have a working knowledge or experience in that. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're hiring someone who is going to listen to someone else mm -hmm. and make a decision based off of what who they trust. Right. And not necessarily what they know. And their incentives are so different, right, than, than that of, of regular people who are in industry and working jobs and, and getting through life by actually creating value. Uh, their incentive, and this is why I think many of these deals were struck, was to strike deals in order to get the credit in the political system for saying, I did X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. I signed off on this. And the point you make on multilateral trade deals is a great one, right? When you are the United States and you have such massive leverage in a deal, to give it away in, in what are oftentimes, again, non-strategic multilateral deals that in order to just pull it all together, you have to concede so much. Where it might just, and again, not an argument against trade. The argument is, do these deals one-on-one? -on -one? And mm -hmm. again, the argument is not punish your trade partner. It is figure out the best, most beneficial way to do this that yeah. makes sense for everybody on both sides. That doesn't typically happen. I mean, it's just think about you setting up an agreement with your neighbor versus an agreement with like 50 of your neighbors. Adding 50, 49 other neighbors makes it really complicated. It may not work out as well. No, because you are all of a sudden, it's watered down so poor, so much right. that you get nothing out of it. And, and there's one thing, the word trade partner, the strongest word in there is partner. Mm -hmm. right. You can't be a trade partner if you're not a partner. Right. Absolutely. One of the other things that you brought up and I want to touch on too is, okay, we talked about the role of technology in terms of, again, benefiting both production and the environment, but that production piece of it means that as farmers can do more with less, meaning frankly, less, uh, well, just more efficient use of all resources, mm -hmm. it leads to the ability of, of individual farms to kind of scale up and become larger. Talk about that and the effect that that's having on the industry. Well, yeah, you bring up the evolution of agriculture over the years, and it's not unique to agriculture. Just look around you in all industries. They evolve to be able to survive. But mm -hmm. uh, doing more with less um, is a concept of let's take what we have and let's, let's make it more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we walked around the farm earlier, and I pointed out some of the test plots I have out there that right. we're actually, uh, with the corn and soybeans I have, we, we, we're planting different test plots out there to see what is the most sustainable or, or the best product to plant. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I didn't mention is I've got a couple test plots out there right now that look at nitrogen use efficiency in both corn and soybeans where some of the newest technology is discovering different um, bacterium, naturally um, forming bacterium, and applying that to the plant that allows that plant 
to produce its own nitrogen. Gotcha. Imagine if we could produce the same amount of grain or mm-hmm. more on less nutrient inputs that we could actually harvest the nitrogen out of the air, which is 78% nitrogen mm-hmm. naturally, um, that these plants could then put the, the, the grain on. And nitrogen in grain is protein. Okay. There's a direct correlation to the amount of protein in a plant with nitrogen being fed that plant. Um, but nitrogen is also one of these uh, products that is, is very volatile. Okay. Meaning it'll leach through the soil and get into your water. It'll it'll volatize it back into the air. We can't control it. Okay. And that frustrates a lot of people, including me as a farmer, that I'll throw out so many pounds of nitrogen a year and you get a you get a wet year, it's gone. You lost it. Okay. You get a dry year, you put too much out. So we have come a long ways in finding different types of biological additives, naturally occurring biologicals applied at the right time to these plants, along with the improved genetics they have, that I have not raised my my nutrient use on this farm hardly at all. I've changed some of the nutrients I've put out there based upon soil tests and uh, research that I've done here, but my yield has increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I saw uh, an article or a, a post the other day from the National Corn Growers Association that since... I believe it was 1990, um, the average corn yield in this country per acre has increased 80%. Really? It's without wild. increasing nutrient use while dropping the use of pesticides, all based on per unit of production, mm-hmm. that um, we're actually producing more, putting more in the bin, more in the truck, more on your plate, mm-hmm without adding more inputs to it. And the automa- we talked about this earlier on the tour, the automation of some of your, like literally your planting technology and your, your tractors has to play a role in that to some extent too. Oh yeah. I mean, today I'm, I'm, I'm very reliant on GPS. Okay. Um, we're, we're grabbing the GPS signals that are out there and it's, it tells me right where I am in that field with the tractor um, and make sure I'm driving at strict 30 foot increments mm-hmm. Um, out in that field. So I'm not overpopulating the field or underpopulating the field. When I'm applying fertilizer, we've uh, taken uh, what they call grid samples. So every mm-hmm. every couple of acres, I have a picture of what's in that soil for, for total plant nutrients. And I can balance that soil for what that plant is either going to mm-hmm. take up or what it's going to need to survive. And I can apply that that fertilizer variably across that field based upon what the needs are instead of a blanket treatment. Um, Not only does that save you money by putting the product where it needs to, I mean, you end up using less product, but it also, it also helps the environment. So you're not over, um, over saturating the soil or the environment with a nutrient that could be lost to the environment, uh, which turns right back into water quality, air quality, soil quality. So, We've been able to save on seed mm-hmm. because we're not planting our crops where they shouldn't be planted. Mm-hmm. Um, we're saving on our fertilizer because we're only putting on what we need to, where we need to, when we need to. I'm saving on crop protection products, whether it's a herbicide, a fungicide, an mm-hmm. insecticide, because I'm only putting them on where I need to, when I need to, and how I need to. Right. And not a blanket treatment going, oh, well, I got one thing on here. Might as well just get it all. 
So, and the bottom line is still economic sustainability mm -hmm. because the cost of these products with a lack of competition for our dollar from our suppliers um, is very concerning to me. In my agronomy world, um, I was given the, uh, the indication this year that there's going to be two potash mines in Canada closing for environmental reasons. There's only really three major fertilizer producers in the world. Okay. So if one decides that they don't want to produce as much, which they do that, mm -hmm. they, the, the, the price goes up. Mm -hmm. and there's not enough competition for a dollar. And that trickles right down to the consumer. When there's no competition for your dollar, you are at the mercy of the market. Right. Um, so the more competition we have, the more manufacturing we have in this country, the more raw good production we have in this country, the more production we have in general in this country, the more competition we have for the consumer dollar, mm -hmm. which is good all the way around for our total economy. Instead of exporting our jobs overseas or exporting right. something overseas and relying on cheap labor overseas that doesn't necessarily help that country out either. I want to talk about the labor, labor piece for a minute. So we're in a, wrote a piece uh, in the Hill recently about just the, the very conscious decisions that have been made by, by politicians and policymakers on the left to extend out um, unemployment benefits from the federal government as far as they can. It is very clear to me, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but from my perspective, and I've written on this, that the goal on their end is to artificially increase the, the cost of labor to finally hit those $15 an hour uh, marks that they've arbitrarily set for what they see as an acceptable wage. And in so doing, well, their attempt to do that is by basically, uh, not, basically not incentivizing people to work because they are currently being paid not to work. And by doing that, they think they can, in essence drive up the cost of labor. Again, this is one of the things that's going to fuel inflation. But in general, it's just making it hard for any business or any industry to get people into the jobs that they need filled so they can actually produce product. Are you seeing that amongst um, your farm and, and fellow farmers at right now that they can't get the labor that they need? Well, first off, I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was thinking that way. <laughs> You're um, not. <laughs> it was quite evident that, that added $300, was it, per week um, unemployment added on top of their unemployment equated to over a $15 per hour wage. Right. And if Congress wasn't going to pass a $15 per hour minimum wage, by golly, they were going to do everything they could by executive order to make sure that you had to because the government was going to pay you to sit home for $15 If it wasn't hour. matched in the market, right. And to answer your question, are we feeling the pinch of labor? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Skilled labor, quality labor, absolutely. Um, we pull our fertilizers from quite a distance away. Mm -hmm. um, it, well, really as close as 30 miles away to hundreds of miles away. Okay. And it's by truck. Mm-hmm. The company I work for, Melrose Farm Service, owns three, no, four semi-trucks, hopper bottoms, and we are um, always moving, trying to always move grain or fertilizer back mm -hmm. and forth. We've got one driver. Hmm. One driver. We could be hiring four, if not five drivers, mm -hmm. but they're not out there. Um, the whole trucking industry is is hurting. Right. Um I pull some products out of central Iowa and I couldn't get them for weeks, not because of production issues, because of transportation issues. Hmm. There's other things that was production issues. You look at the 
you look at the parking lots of the car dealers. There's a local car dealer who has seven cars mm-hmm. in their parking lot. It's don't have inventory. Seven Literally can't sell. cars. Right. Local restaurants. The restaurant I <laughs> eat breakfast at at the morning in the morning um, had to curtail their hours because they didn't have enough employees. Right. Uh, and it's it's ridiculous. Um, I had one person apply for seasonal spring help at our farm service this year. One person. <laughs> I normally get maybe up to a dozen. That's insane. And That's... and yet. I don't understand why we have that extra payment on unemployment when in Wisconsin we have a low unemployment rate. We're st- I mean, that's still encouraging people to, excuse me, still encouraging people to stay home. 44% of jobs uh, were unfilled, and I believe it was in April, according to the National Federation of Independent Business. I mean, that's that is a real problem for production. Again, this is what is going to feed inflation. That plus the Biden administration mm-hmm. working very hard to drive up the cost of energy, which is a whole nother discussion. But these are the fundamental feed-ins to all products and services, labor and energy. If you artificially boost their costs, which Biden is doing, no two ways about it, and the Congress along with him, it, that will, in, in essence, artificially boost the end products. And boy, you'll see wealth and, and value destroyed uh, overnight. The other part of it too, which I think is important because we're talking about automation here is, and I wrote about this too in the same piece. So the left is trying to artificially drive up the cost of labor. They're doing that with, again, the, the, the basically the imposition of never ending unemployment benefits. And I would say they're doing two things. One, they're trying to get to that $15 an hour uh, plus arbitrary designated acceptable wage on their part. And it's also kind of like the underlying threat of like, you know, universal basic income, which also comes from the left, right? Like if you don't supersede our arbitrary mark, we will simply pay people not to work. Well, the market will have a response to this. And this is my warning to those on the left. And frankly, more importantly, the warning to the American people is automation will just be put into overdrive. We do have the ability to automate a lot of jobs. And what stops that from happening right now is because it's it's it maybe not worth the capital investment to do that. But if you basically make labor unavailable or unaffordable, people will have to make choices that maybe they wouldn't have made. And when it comes to things like trucking, when it comes to big, huge components in the service industry, don't be surprised when those jobs suddenly are permanently gone because of decisions that were made by leftist politicians. Yeah, we're seeing that already, even in agriculture. um, I'm old enough to remember the days uh, on my grandfather's farm down in Berry Mills where I helped carry milk from the barn to the milk house and dump it into the bulk tank. Mm-hmm. Today, I have customers who run robots. Mm-hmm. There isn't a, a human milker in those barns. Mm-hmm. Who would have ever dreamed that a cow would walk into a stall on her own <laughs> and allow a machine to to prep her, wash her, and put a milker on her, mm-hmm. and she'd stand there and, and do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and they will. I've seen it. They'll yeah. run right up, and yeah, no, you're right. I mean, animals and humans are products of the environment they're exposed to, mm-hmm. and we're going to keep evolving as the environment dictates. We need to. Mm-hmm. I had to Im- increase the size of my uh, my machinery on the farm versus hiring help. Right. 
So, and, and it's just not agriculture. It's every business. You go into right. Walmart, how many, how many self-checkouts do you have? Mm-hmm. McDonald's in, in the area, you go in there, you have your self-checkout kiosk where you have that person behind the counter. Right. Um, jobs are being moved in a direction that quite a few people do, are not comfortable with, but it's out of necessity. Um, that also opens a door for other jobs to come in. And that, that's one thing that you have to realize that bring this, bringing this back to agriculture is mm-hmm. a farmer can't be everything he needs to be on the farm. Um, you know, the days I grew up in the 70s on the farm in the 80s um, were very diversified. Mm-hmm. Um, we had chickens, we had pigs, we had cattle, we had crops. Right. And we were self-sustained. I mean, we only went to town maybe buy some clothes, some gas, and a little bit of food. The garden did the rest, and we mm-hmm. sold some eggs on the side to to, to be that spending money. So you, we could go to McDonald's or the old Sandy's in the cross. That was the big treat on, on Sundays after church was <laughs> we're going to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac. Right. Um, today it's so much different than that, and uh, we 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 need to be able to have a life mm-hmm. on the farm, but um, well, and I, I think it's an important point. The argument is not against increase leverage from technology because we've been talking about all the benefits mm-hmm. of that. But I do believe that when you introduce artificial increases in costs like the left is doing right now, you force people to make decisions that they might not organically make uh, otherwise. And that is the real distinction here in that once these changes are made and once once the capital investments are made in bigger and better technology, you're not coming back from that. And no, It's hard to go backwards from where you've been. That's I right. Can- I can't even imagine going to a smaller planter and, ha- and not having GPS guidance on there or going right. back to a sprayer. I was just thinking the other day as I'm doing a, a, a weed pass in a field that I'm going along and all I have to do is drive. Right. The sprayer turns on and off where it needs where to. Where it needs to, right. It's versus programmed. I'm turning it on and off. And, right. And thing, I mean, I couldn't imagine going back to those days of having to, to do what I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's improvement. That's that certainly is advancement that we need to embrace. Right. But we also need to allow it to be uh, advanced by um, by by true um, supply and demand by capitalism. Correct. That that yes. that the market is is demanding and it's ready for it. It's not that we are telling as a policymaker that no, we want to see this. You know more. If affordable, cleaner, sustainable energy is going to happen in time, right? And we've seen that all along. Um, we've introduced biodiesel into into our fuel system, ethanol. Mm-hmm. We've reduced our need on fossil fuels. We've brought these things on that are self sustaining. Um, yes, it took a little bit of seed money to go, mm-hmm. but don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. on, on some of these things, and and you can't push some things faster than what it's than what is sustainable right and um that's to me sustainable at first was just a, a word i really wasn't comfortable with that word <laughs> i thought it was a fad and a catch-all for anything it, at, it at was times, and it, right it, yes. it still is <laughs> but one thing i learned over my years is sustainability is multifaceted and multi-pronged right. it isn't just economic sustainability it isn't just environmental sustainability and it isn't just social sustainability Mm -hmm. true sustainability is all three you can't be sustainable if you're going to ignore one of those three legs right 
it's an incredibly important point and it speaks just to what we're talking about. It's, we are arguing that technology is a great thing to leverage. The market will demand it. It will then fund it too because it'll be worth the investment of doing. But these things need to happen in a way that's, that again, millions of decisions being made in a sensible and logical way, not simply arbitrary decisions from politicians that suddenly explode costs, force things to happen, and can leave a society really unready to deal with the potential fallout of that. And, you know, my urge to the people that are listening to us is really do hold elected officials to account who are simply forcing these issues, again, paying people not to work and then potentially eliminating their jobs in the long term in a way that the market wasn't ready to accept organically. Speaking of um, politics and policy, I got to ask you this. You're a sensible guy. We've had a sensible conversation, but you went off and you ran for office recently. Tell us about that. Well, it doesn't sound so sensible now, does it? <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I have to ask this question. You otherwise seem sensible. And then you did this. Well, How did that happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight for sure. Okay. Um, you know, back in 2003, I had the opportunity to take uh, or participate in a program at that time called the DuPont Young Leaders Program, mm -hmm. um, which uh, was put on by a, an agricultural company. Um, other people may have known them from the race car they sponsored um, on the racetrack, mm -hmm. but also big in, uh, in manufacturing and paints, DuPont. Um, sponsored this uh, program through the uh, not only the American Soybean Association, but the uh, other um, commodity trade groups like the National Corn Growers Association mm -hmm. that uh, they would take couples uh, from, I think it was like 27 states out of the Midwest mm -hmm. and um, put them through a leadership training. And that leadership training exposed us to policy. Okay. Um, how to work with our policymakers, how to um, work with others, how to um, how to know your yourself mm -hmm. um, and, and become a a leader in whatever facet you wanted to be in, and uh, I found that very educational. Um, I met a lot of great people um, through there, and um, it's really expanded my horizons on that and. One of the most famous people I've met happens to be uh, the the now sitting governor of mm -hmm. South Dakota was in my 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 2003 class. So <laughs> uh, shout out to uh, Governor Noam there. Um, uh, she did okay. She did. <laughs> she did okay for a, for a farm girl. Um, but I, I took that and I became involved with um, ag policy on the state level and then on to the national level where mm -hmm. I served. Um, three three-year terms uh, on the National American Soybean Association board and had the opportunity to visit Congress multiple times throughout mm -hmm. the year, work on egg policies, worked on the farm bill, mm -hmm. worked on environmental issues, sustainability boards, um, did did some world travel missions to, to help open markets and build markets. And, and I kind of got that policy bug bite. Mm-hmm. And um, got to the point when I, when I was uh, termed off and, you know, never thought term limits was really that much of a big deal, but I learned that term limits is mm -hmm. from there that you will never get progress if you keep doing the same thing over yeah. and over and over again. And if you don't bring new, fresh blood into the organizations or into government, you will never make progress. Right. And uh, 
I watched over the years in the different projects we worked on through food labeling, through um, environmental issues, um, through just the whole ag industry of defending what we were doing or not doing. Mm -hmm. It was quite evident that um, if you are going to complain about something Mm -hmm. and not offer a solution, you were part of the problem. And I didn't want to be part of the problem. Right. And I wasn't quite happy with everything that was going on. So I said, you know what? I'm going to be part of the solution. I may not have the answers, but I certainly want to be part of the solution. Right. Or help find the answers or find the people that have the answers. So I, first of all, stepped into uh, the role of a town board supervisor mm-hmm. here in our township. And um, the next year I decided that um, I thought we needed to have an, a strong agricultural voice on the county board. And um, decided to run there, and uh, I honestly didn't put that big of an effort into it. Um, wasn't sure how to run a campaign. Did mm-hmm. it, had a little bit of help, but uh, ended up beating uh, the incumbent, who I think had been in office for twenty some odd years, mm-hmm. by by two votes. Okay. And so the next time someone says my vote doesn't count, <laughs> I hold up two my votes. two fingers <laughs> and they say, "What's that for?" I said, "I won my first election by two votes." Right. Did you vote? Well, no. Well, then it could have been one vote or three votes. Right. So every vote counts. I don't care if it's by 20,000 or two. Right. And um, from there on, I just felt that I could add a strong conservative voice, Mm -hmm. common sense voice, and being able to listen. And that's what being on the soybean board, coming through the leadership classes I had, um, helped me to understand the art of listening Mm -hmm. and uh, finding out the common goal and then trying to build a roadmap to get there. Mm -hmm. Because that's one thing I've seen over the years in in the partisan politics is most times the goal is the same. The map, the road to get there is wildly different. Right. And if you can identify that end goal – and build a consensus on how to get there. That's what we need to have done. And um, both parties are guilty of that, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And we, we need to be able to get back to somebody actually representing the people to whatever level of um, government that you're wanting to run for or represent versus representing the government to the people. Right. Well, so much of what you said is true. And I, Part of term limits is well taken. You know, you, you hear the argument against it from people that say, oh, you know, if you just change the politician, the staff will always be there. But the reality is this. It, it creates churn. It creates uh, creative destruction, which that our entire political class desperately needs. And they need new ideas. And people coming in like yourself who have tangible experience and who can add good ideas. And the other thing that I think needs to happen is a, a total reorientation of, of risk orientation, the willingness to accept risk. If, if all these people are concerned about is, can they extend their stay in office indefinitely? Well, then we're not going to get good ideas because good ideas can be risky at times. Mm-hmm. And so everybody knows they're just doing this for some period of time. It's not going to be their life or their career. It will change the way that they're actually willing to approach risk. It should never be their life. No, it should not. And I remember (laughs) that. No, it should not. I remember that ride home from St. Louis. I drove down. My wife was down there for the the retirement. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't realize this, but she said, you didn't say a word on the way home. 
and it just hit me. Mm-hmm. That part of my life was done. Mm-hmm. And I can see that as an elected official. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get comfortable. You get very comfortable mm-hmm. in what you're doing. Right. But uh, that's when I kind of stepped back and said, okay, I looked at how that organization was ran over the years. And every year was a new leader. Right. Every year was a new chairman, a new president, new first vice president. Mm-hmm. Of the Soybean Association. Of the Soybean Association. Right. Exactly. Right. Now, it was a step up. You were elected first vice, mm-hmm. automatically went to the president, automatically sure. went to chairman. But you, every year, those top three were never the same. So you had fresh ideas coming in. Every right. year, you had new directors coming in. Right. Because others turned off. You had new blood, new ideas coming in. And that, I think, made that organization one of the premier ag policy organizations in the world. Right. We weren't big, but we had a voice. Right. And people respected us. When we went on Capitol Hill, you could walk into the Senate Ag um, Committee Chair's office mm-hmm. and you had an audience. You could walk into Colin Peterson's office and have mm-hmm. an audience or Mike Connolly's office and have an audience. Um Department of Ag, um, our executive vice, our executive director of the mm-hmm. American Soybean Association ended up being the second in command at USDA under Trump. Mm. Hmm. And that was very encouraging to see under that administration how people with knowledge of the industries that they were going to be overseeing were put into place right? versus somebody who was a mayor or a governor, <laughs> or something else put into place as a reward. As a reward, that's right. right. So right. I think we need to get back as a society, as a, as a country, in putting people in place that actually work for a living. That know how to do things? <laughs> Absolutely. That, wouldn't that be nice? Absolutely. And, I, and that's, that, that was one of my driving forces on why I ran for assembly. Right. was I felt our representation really wasn't paying attention to what was happening within the district. Right. And uh, hopefully there, hopefully I caught his attention that I'm, that changes. But um, Well, I'm sure you did, and I hope that you consider doing it again because you're absolutely right. People that um, actually know how to do things. I know that sounds very rudimentary, but it's very true. If you spend time around politics, you'll understand it. There's way too many people that don't know how to do things, don't bring to bear the skills that actually drive the results that we need. And then that are willing to ultimately say, you know, I'll deal with the repercussions, but I'm going to make the right decision mm-hmm. because I know that if I'm not elected to the next thing, then that's fine because I have a life and I have another yep. thing to go on to. That's important. And the thing I've learned over the years, God puts people in places where they belong. Right. At that particular time. We may not agree with that choice, <laughs> but they're put there for a reason. Right. And uh, and that's one thing I always have to remember is I'm where I am for a reason. You are where you are for a reason. Right. We had a, President Obama there for a reason. We had president, the past presidents there for a reason and the current ones all there for a reason. And um, all we can do is learn from that mm-hmm. and move forward and make the right decisions. Right. Um, and it, it never cease to amaze me my years of um, visiting our senators and congressmen on capitol hill and working with their staffs the different levels of competency Mm -hmm. there was with staffs was astounding (laughs) um some staffs were absolutely phenomenal and others were there with the deer in the headlight look right right 
as an elected official, I don't care if it's on the school board all the way up to a senator or president, you are never expected to know everything. Sure. Never expected. But you had better be able to have people surrounded of, surrounding you mm-hmm. who can fill in those gaps for you that you can trust. Right. And that, that's one thing that I, I look for in people that are running for office, that are willing to step up and serve us. Like, I want to serve the township of Hamilton or the, or the cross County right. is that you can surround yourself with people that are also willing to do that and find the right answer for you and give right. you the right information. Right. Kevin, before we, before we have to let you go, let me ask you what makes you hopeful about the future of agriculture? Well, I'm, I'm starting to see the next generation take a better interest in agriculture. Um, it's very encouraging to see, some of the long-term customers I have that their their children are, are stepping up to take over in the farm where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, farmers are retiring and their their kids weren't there to take it over. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, with the fact that we're seeing technology take over that makes this more fun, gives uh, those of us on the farm the ability to have a life. Mm-hmm. Um, to take vacations, to enjoy the, the finer things, that we can go to the logger game mm-hmm. when we need to or want to instead of, oh, i got to milk cows or i got to do this or do that. Now, right. Don't get me wrong, that stuff is still there. But it still it gives us the opportunities and options mm-hmm. to do that, and that's the next generation sees that and says, you know what, I like this. Right. I mean, and there's more to farming, more to agriculture than just growing crops uh, such as corn, beans, or milking cows, or raising pigs, or 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 beef. I mean, you've got you got your greenhouses that are growing vegetables. You have your vegetable farms. You have your strawberry places. Uh, there's all sorts of agriculture out there that, if you just take the time and look, that affect all of us. And you know, the large commodity type farming that we see a lot in the area is not the only type of farming we have, but it is. It's one of many, mm-hmm. and um, as as the word gets out and as uh, the education gets out on what all is involved with agriculture, the technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need people that are agronomists. We need people that are computer technology people. We need mechanics. I had a mechanic in here last year that had to come fix my tractor. He never touched a wrench. <laughs> he hooked his computer on there, and he, he, he did some software changes. He said, there, you're good to go. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, veterinarians, um, accountants, uh, you need nutritionists out there. I mean, it's, it's just a wide-open field that people don't really take advantage of or, or, or realize that farming is more than sitting out on a farm and sitting on a tractor. Right. Well, and that's for sure. And we appreciate you sharing this entire story with our listeners today. And thanks for joining us in the Right Idea Podcast. And if you'll have us back, we'd love to come back in the future. Oh, I'd love to have you back. This was fun. It was exciting. And uh, um, certainly am more willing to share the story of agriculture and and making sure that people um, understand that uh, this is just another industry in, in mm-hmm. this great country of ours that... Um, that helps secure not only our food safety, but our, uh, our national security as well. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. And we'll be back. Well, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, 
Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.